Welcome back to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I am Bo Sanders. We are happy you're with us today. We've got a couple things to talk about. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about the weather at all, Bo. We're about to get some really, really cold nights. You are not kidding. I have really prioritized getting out in the sunny afternoons because I remember this pattern from the last couple years of getting a couple warm days or even weeks. And um, if you don't take advantage of it, when the cold returns, your winter can start to feel very long. Yeah. So it's going to get like 17, 18, 20 degrees at night here. And I know some of our friends maybe who are in like uh, Minnesota or uh, Montana, you Plains know, of that's nothing, but, uh, but for us, that's really something and, and not so good for our winter crops that we've got growing also. Yeah, I was thinking about that because I have all sorts of stuff uh, popping up and greening out already. And I was right. wondering how it's going to affect it. But I, I don't think it should be too many nights. So I think we're going to hit about four or five nights of really cold weather. And it also makes me very conscious of the people who are houseless out there. Oh, yeah. Oof. Listener, we are delighted uh, to spend some time with you. And I've been looking forward to just sitting this morning uh, with a nice cup of coffee and chatting with Randy. And we love that we can share these conversations with you and get uh, you involved in the conversation. Uh, I did have a couple of people reach out to me from the last episode of Randy, and they wanted to know the punchline of Richard's joke. And uh, well, I had told a story, but it was a little salty, and I didn't think it was oh, okay. appropriate for mixed company, so I, I didn't I didn't tell the joke. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe hit him back privately. Huh? <laughs> I know I did. <laughs> But anyway, it was nice to know that people are listening and uh, and followed up to to see what the <laughs> the conclusion of that story was. So, hey, Randy, I have two things I would love to to um, ruminate with you this morning. Just sort of compare notes and see what comes of it. The first is just the idea of education, like being a lifelong learner. And the other thing is about uh, aging well and becoming an elder. And so those are the two things I'm hoping. I'm sure there will be rabbit trails and we might we may end up talking about something completely different, like um, railroad infrastructure and, you know, all sorts of stuff that we could talk about this morning, things I'm really upset about and quite passionate about. But those are the two things that I, I, I'm hoping uh, that we talk about. But who knows where this is going to go? All right. Well, I'm, I'm game. This is a pretty chill morning. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm writing my dissertation. And part of that is I'm doing a literature review. And part of my lit review, because I'm in religious education, is um, looking at how people are doing education and specifically covering anti-racist uh, education topics. And it's really got me thinking about how much when we say education, we mean the context of the classroom. But in reality, so much, most of what we learn in life doesn't happen in the classroom. And I say this as somebody who's, you know, an educator, but 
after the pandemic, when, you know, schools have been wanting to reopen and when teachers unions have, have come under criticism and, you know, education comes up in the news. And I know people who have returned, uh, they're getting a higher education, it gets called. They're going back for a master's degree or something. And just, you know, listening to people uh, talk, it's really got me thinking about the fact that the classroom for many, many subjects and arena areas of life, the classroom isn't really the best way for actual education, for learning to happen. It has its place. I'm, you know, there's things that can happen there, but it's really not where most of our learning happens. Most of our learning happens by following the models of other people, by participating in practices, by being involved in community um, or a situation arises. And so it's very situational uh, learning. Something breaks and you got to figure out how to fix it. Yeah. But um, yeah, but, but actually, you know, the classroom's excellent for some things like um, if you want to do um, what Paulo Freire calls the pedagogy of the press, the classroom's a perfect place for that. So you can have this transaction of knowledge in a classroom and huh. learn uh, what your, uh, what he would call your oppressor wants you to learn um, by simply opening up your brain and learning the things that they tell you to learn. So it's great if you want to create a dualistic uh, bad pedagogy um, where people can just um, continue on the same things they've been that have been taught for generations. Yeah, this classroom's a perfect place for that. Oh man, you threw me a curveball there. That's not that's not where I thought you were going with that. Well, man, I had 15 years at uh, uh, in academia, right? As yeah. a as a teacher, um, professor, and. You know, it, the hardest thing in the world was to try and get people to share their experience and embody what they're learning, right? Yeah. Because that's when you really begin. And if if they can't relate it to their own experience, it's just facts. It's just, you know, dead knowledge. And, uh, uh, and then they can just go on to someone else and say, I know this, you know. But when you add it to your own experience... Uh, and interact with this and with other people, all of a sudden you're getting the community uh, a conversation going. Uh, it becomes really relevant, right? Like asking really good questions is a, is one way that I tried to overcome this. It's, it's just um, so, so part of the main assignment every week for me, uh, for my co-learners um, was to uh, ask a really good question. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I I found a good quote recently, and I don't have it in front of me, but about um, that the role of the educator is best facilitated when they don't have the answers, but that they have really good questions. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's that's my philosophy. It's like, um, you know, part of their whole grade, which I really didn't do grades, but we call it grades, uh, was... Uh, to, to come up with a, what I call a critically um, uh, a critical question of concern yeah. that they can lead a discussion on can't be rhetorical. It can't be something they already know. 
Uh, it has to be something that would make for a good discussion. It has to be more complex than ans- asking yes or no or, you know, something like that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. The year that I was important thing, it has to be a question that they're really interested. They want to, they want to know more about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you had, uh, you had given us a format as students that I used when I was teaching of that, the four MAT, the mat, and that, that last section being the critical question, uh, as the semester would go on and people really learned how to ask those kinds of questions, the, the depth of engagement was just so profoundly different once they entered into, you know, that exercise. Yeah, I I used that format for my first couple of years, and then I just went to the question. <laughs> you, just kept, you just kept that part? I like a really good question encompassing yeah. everything else. So. Wow, that's cool. Well, you know, the other thing that uh, I've been – the reason that I've been thinking about this is, um, you know, obviously you, you and I have talked about not calling yourself a farmer – because you really don't view it as a, a farm, right? Which, which people think they know what those activities are, but as a, an education center or, you know, community. And yeah, a learning, learning center, but, learning. Um, you know, the official name is Elahe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and Elahe Farm and Seeds. And one of those main components is the learning center, right? Yeah. So we, we just are building a building right now. It's called the, uh, for short, the Ag and Learning Center, but we call it the Agricultural and Learning Center. Yeah. And so, you know, you've your group's been doing a tremendous job of, um, you know, whether it's the emails or, you know, the, the fundraising and keeping people up to date on the developments out there. But, it, you know, it's really got me, I'm obviously excited about it. But it happened to come at a time where I was doing a presentation about um, the Greek words, different Greek words, and how they get translated into English. Hmm. And, you know, the ones that are sort of famous are like we have, you know, the Greeks had different words for love, and but it all gets translated love. But, you know, like where we get Philadelphia from, philia, right, is like brotherly love. And so that was like one example. But wisdom is the same thing. There are so many Greek words for wisdom or knowledge that get translated into English of like philosophy, right? It's the philosoph and uh, even epistemology being like, how do you know something, right? The episteme. But what if, if philosophy is philistoph, then it, epistemology is epistemoph. <laughs> That's a good one. Did you just come up with that? I did. Oh, my <laughs> Man, for being this early, that was uh, that was pretty sharp. But my favorite word in Greek does it's one of the words that didn't get translated into English. It doesn't come in, and it's this word phronesis, p h r o phronesis. Um, and it's an embodied wisdom. Mm. So one of the reasons I love it so much is because it's, it's a learning, it's a, a knowledge, a wisdom that isn't housed entirely in the gray matter of your brain, that there is a wisdom that inhabits de- the cells of your body 
that it's down, you know, but so in English, we have words like muscle memory right. or con- or concepts like te- the 10,000 hours, right, of Malcolm Gladwell. Um, so we have concepts like phronesis, but we don't have the actual thing, which is like, but being a minister in a congregation where many of the people are older than me, I am so interested in the things that they know, the wisdom that they have and how they access it. Because there are things like maybe pre-technology things they did for their job or even growing up or cultural things that they have had experiences, uh, whether it's cross-culturally or, you know, navigating something in society, they know all sorts of things that I don't know. And in interacting with them, I'm you know trying to figure out how to access the wisdom that they have in them. And I'm finding that so much of it isn't in their brain only. It's, mm-hmm. They can't explain it or they can't, you know, describe it. They may not even conceptualize it, but there are just a hundred little things. So like one of my favorite, um, illustrations that I use is if you've ever been around somebody who knits, uh, there's a wisdom, a a knowledge that they have in their fingers. They call that a nitwit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to use that and I may not give you credit. I'm just letting (laughs) you know. I I can't guarantee that I tell them where I got that from. But where they can actually be knitting, they're not even looking down. They're actually engaged in a conversation or in a committee meeting or something. And there's a, a wisdom, a knowledge in their hands where they know not just the knot, but little things like tension and you know, how to feed in the, the yarn that's needed for the next. And it's amazing. And you just think, well, how would you learn that? Right. And you can say, well, practice makes perfect or whatever. But part of it for me is this idea of an embodied wisdom or knowledge that I just think it's so intriguing how people learn. So I'll give you two more examples. If you've ever been around somebody who knows an instrument, right? Like you play the guitar, there's a, there is a wisdom or a knowledge I mean, layers and layers of things that a new person just, you can't explain it to them or describe it. You know, you couldn't put it in a manual. It's, you know, from the way you hold your wrists or how you posture and how, how you bring out the sound at certain times or just like a hundred little things, you know? Yeah. But, but they actually do put those in books and try to teach that way. Right. Uh, and it, it, that's the whole basis of uh, Western education is to to theorize, um, explain it all, and then hopefully have you do it, right? Uh, which is not at all, I think, good learning. That's exactly what, you know, why I wanted to talk about this, because when somebody is called uh, an educator, it's usually in a very specific context of 
words, whether they're spoken or written, that are sort of unidirectional, one-directional. When so much of our learning or education isn't doesn't come from that that vehicle. It doesn't come through that method. And um, the reason that I've been thinking a lot about this is that with these folks in my life, you know, who are getting older and as their bodies change in age <clears throat> or their, you know, cognitive abilities, right, change and their life circumstances change, knowing that there is a wisdom in community that either we don't want to lose to say it in the negative, or I want to know, like, how can you pass it on? And so this embodied wisdom uh, to me is so, I just, I'm fascinated with what people know that I don't and how they came, how would I come to know that? And I just respect, you know, for some people it's, it's through thousands of hours, but for other people it's been through crisis, like the circumstances of their life made it so that they had to figure this out. And it's not something that's the theoretical, right? It's not in the abstract. It actually lives down in the cells of their body. And uh, I read a book one time called uh, the starfish and the spider and it had a really interesting beginning of the book. It it's <clears throat> said, you know, that scientists have been trying to figure out for a long time where memories are stored in the brain. And it turns out the reason that they can't find where memories are stored in the brain is because memories aren't stored in the brain. Like it's a bad question. And that it turns out that memories are stored, both made and accessed, when different parts of the brain and the body are connected, right, in a, I don't know, I don't have the scientific language, but. Symbiosis. Yeah, yeah. But the, that's why sometimes, like, your smell can be one of the most powerful triggers of memory. Like, you'll smell something and you can say, I, I know what that is. I don't even have to see it. I know what that is. I was in my grandma's kitchen when I was six years old and blah, 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 right? And memory is accessed, right, through the nose. And that there's a wisdom to smell, sense. And I just, I find this stuff so interesting, especially, you know, my father. Um, now, I, I've been asking him lots of questions about things I remember from my childhood or maybe, you know, our family stories and just wanting to make sure that I hear him tell those stories again, because I, I have a memory of them, but I was much younger or maybe I had a different priorities back then. And uh, I didn't really connect the dots. And as I'm getting older, I'm like, Hey, can I ask you a question? Do you remember this person? And said, yeah. And I said, do I have it right that they came from this family situation or, you know, whatever it is from, do you remember, uh, you know, I said to my dad, do you remember when we were in this country and we met this group 
what were they about again? And whatever it is, but so much of it isn't book learning and it's not stored in the, just in the front part of your brain. It's a register lower than that. And it lives down somewhere as a person for me uh, of faith. I've really noticed that in the, the past couple of years that we've been through of social distancing and isolation and political debates about masks and so many other things that there are people in my life who came through that much better than others and came through it maybe with a peace or a, a healthiness. And then some of us, you know, realized that we weren't dealing so well with what was going on and whether we were overeating or drinking or, you know, trouble sleeping or whatever it was. But there were some people who just, they had an internal knowledge or wisdom that they embodied, you know, a, a healthier sort of ability to navigate those really challenging circumstances. And it got me just thinking about, I'd like to know how they did it and what do they know that I don't know? And so as I've gone down this road, and so I just been thinking about you because I know that embodied wisdom is one of your values. Right. So, um, also communal wisdom. Yeah. We, we, we learn differently in community, um, with everybody else's experience and embodied wisdom together. So I think there's an, another way of, you know, I mean, all of this sort of like the Harvard study gardeners, multiple intelligences kind of start getting behind this to say, Oh, I think he had like 12 or 17 or something. I can't remember like that, but I, I figure there's almost countless human beings are so, um, um, complex that there's probably, you know, many, 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 many ways of learning, not just by sight, by smell, by touch, by taste, by, you know, um, uh, sort of a rationale process and experiences and intuitiveness and, you know, artisticness and, you know, all these different things. So, um, yeah, so it's, a, it's you know, if we think we understand it, we, we don't understand it. But what we can understand is that that, that, the classroom, the academic setting is by far the most limiting of all of those things. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's almost like a laboratory, right? It's set up to uh, isolate variables and to limit outside interference. Yeah, which is sort of cult like if you think about it. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Well, on a similar note, and we can circle back to that, but I wanted to tell you, I've begun on an interesting journey this year. So uh, listeners may be aware that I turn 50 in a month, and that's a big number for me, partly because men in my family don't tend to live a long time, uh, historically. And so I'm very aware of when the, the numbers of with five get there that you got to start paying attention to certain things. But also because my wife and I 
didn't have kids of our own, I'm really enjoying seeing my friends and, and family members who had children that there's sort of a marking of seasons and decades that's, you know, predictable and sort of, um, you know, reliable way of moving through certain stages and ways to sort of mark different eras. And I don't have any of that. And so these two things have come together in an interesting way in that I have just been feeling the need uh, for, you know, a compass, like to, to brush up on my compass skills with a map and sort of get my orientation. So I have joined a guided journaling group that's working its way through a book called From Aging to Saging by Rabbi Zalman. And we're only like a month and a half in. So I'm still in literally the first set of exercises. But one of the exercises, and this is the one I wanted to pick your brain about, one of the exercises is that you are supposed to um, <clears throat> journal about mo- model or people who have modeled um, aging well, uh, you know, who you view as sort of elders. And, and a second exercise was what people who didn't model that well, did not age well, right? They just got older. They didn't get... Uh, they didn't become elders and carry themselves in that way or even view themselves that way. And I had two strange epiphanies. One is that because men in my family, you know, because I come from the middle of Ohio, you know, f- farmers and uh, factory workers is my sort of background. Um in between uh, passing on early or not being that healthy, I don't have a lot of pictures from my family specifically of this, of becoming a, a person of wisdom as you age, right? So I, I'm very aware of that. But the other thing is that because I was a pastor's son, we moved every three or four years, maybe eight years. I have for my entire life. And by journaling this, I realized this is going to sound stupid, but it's actually like for me, it's really uh, important. When I show up, people are already the age that they are. I didn't see how they got there. And then I leave them, you know, every four or five years. So I don't see them continue on that journey. And that this itinerant lifestyle has actually robbed me in a sense or not provided for me healthy pictures of aging and maturing and growing in wisdom and stature right? because people are just the age they are when I meet them and then I leave them and I don't see how that journey continues and then I meet somebody else and I realized I haven't seen people move through seasons of life. Like you're only the third person that I know who's retired, that I've known them when they retired. 
Sometimes I meet people, but they're already retired, but I didn't see them transition, you know, out of that. So like my father-in-law would be one that, right. I've seen move in this direction and I'm very grateful for that picture, but I just am very aware that the, the model, both in my family and then in my professional life, that I don't have a lot of positive pictures and role models of the direction that my heart is wanting to move in. And I thought I would love to tell Randy about this and to co- like contrast it maybe a little bit with models that you've seen or just, I, you know, communal differences. So that's my little story. And it's why I've been thinking about this stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, in uh, Native communities, they often say there are elders and there are old people. <laughs> oh, wow. So that might be the difference. Um, really interesting. Kind of what does it mean to be an elder? Yeah. That's a good question because no one who is an elder says, you know, hey, I'm an elder. You know, when people say that, it's uh, always suspicious. Oh. So on my um, uh, my bio, when when I start getting called stuff, I'll say people have said, <laughs> you know, not used in the Donald Trump kind of way where it's made up, <laughs> but um, or anything you want to say. But people have said, you know, like uh, the Native community uh, in Portland has called uh, Edith and I elders. They've uh, recognized us as elders. Um, a lot of places we go now, young people are going elders. And I'm like, at first I was really uncomfortable with that because I'm, and I always said up until a couple of years ago, well, I'm, if I'm anything of an elder, I'm an elder junior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and so, but I've, I've actually struggled a lot with this. Like, uh, um, what does that mean? How do I, what kind of an elder do I want to be? Mm-hmm. Um and I've struggled because, like, all of our lives, we've been involved in the community, um, feeding people, taking care of baby needs, having, um, uh, helping people get off drugs, uh, uh, cultural things like powwows and Indian uh, youth, Indian cultural youth camps, and you know, just all these things we've done, pastoring for seven years all the hospital visits and all the funerals and all the, you know, all the weddings and in active. And so now we're sort of like, there's a few people, people I'm mentoring and there's probably a lot. I know there's a lot who say, you know, he's one of my mentors. People kind of use that term freely nowadays. Um, just like they read your stuff and they say, you're one of my mentors. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but I, we are mentoring a few people. Um yeah, what does that mean? Um, I think a couple things have come to my mind. One is um, like all my elders that have that I've learned from in the past, are, except for one, have passed on. Mm. So they're not around anymore. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I've had the thought, well, maybe you're an elder when all your elders are gone. <laughs> mm. um, and I think uh, whether people recognize you have wisdom or not, you know, it's another, because you can be young and be an elder, right? If you're wise, 
So uh, I think it has something to do with age and experience, but but also there may be young younger elders. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, but but I think everybody calling you that all the time kind of is their declaration that now you're their elder. So, um, so, so like on my, um, I don't think I use the word elder. I say like people have people are, uh, has been known as right. A wisdom keeper, things like that, because I've had a lot of people saying that. Right. So, um, but I don't think of myself that way. I still think of myself as like fairly young mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> until I look in the mirror, right? Rock and roll, baby. Yeah. And I mean, especially if you grew up in the you know, late 60s, early 70s. <laughs> old, right? Um, Sometimes I catch myself and I think, I'm basically an overgrown youth pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Winky Pratt used to call himself the oldest youth pastor in the world. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so I, I think do people listen to you? I guess that's maybe the bottom line. Uh, do people listen to you with the things that you share or are you just, you know, uh, mouthing words and that amount don't amount to much and people don't pay attention to. So, so we used to, um, uh, at our church, uh, you talked about earlier about, uh, committees and things and, yeah. We did away uh, when I was pastoring in a native community in Carson. We did away with all the committees. We did away with all the councils, and and we just sort of met together, right? And um, and when we met together, um, it was the people who sort of like their life was true to their words, their experience, and what they did. They were maybe a gracious person, maybe they were hospitable. They took care of their grandchildren. They did, you know, all these sort of things. So people knew them as people whose words were important. But then there were other people who would just kind of like, they were just like loud mouths and, and their life didn't match their words. And everybody would let them talk too, but nobody paid much attention to them, you know. So I think a lot of it has to do with like, do, are people listening to you and taking yeah. your words to heart? Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. I can see that. Well, listener, we would love to know your thoughts about both lifelong learning, but also about uh, aging well and moving into being a, a person of wisdom in your community and what that looks like. If you have any insights for us, please, you can comment on the show notes right there on the website or on Facebook. You can email us, connect at piecingitalltogether.com, P-E-A-C. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. Uh, If you think that this episode would be good for anyone else uh, to listen in on, please share it, pass it along. Um, But I'm sure as I continue both in my this big birthday year and also through this journaling group i'm sure that this is going to come up again so i would love uh, to be in conversation with you yeah for my 50th birthday um i wanted to uh respond to all the people who said i want to be a missionary to native americans so i wrote a little book called when going to church is sin 
Oh, that's a good uh, and I had that published on my 50th birthday. And then I, I, um, I did three things and I wanted a karaoke party. <laughs> so we had a karaoke party, invited all our friends. And then the third thing was like, I wanted to have two beers. Right. So I generally only have one beer. That's ah, I, I splurged and had two beers. <laughs> that is so funny. One of my little nephews, he's five. He learned, I have no idea why, but he learned all the words to American Pie. Oh, yeah, really? That's a difficult uh, song to learn all the words I, to. No, I think it's pretty amazing, but I'm thinking about surprising him at my 50th birthday by having everyone do a community karaoke and for uh-huh. everyone to sing American Pie so that he can hear what it sounds like when a group sings. Uh-huh. But I don't know COVID-wise if I'm ready for group singing yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was uh, now I'm hearing American Pie, but before I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice to end this episode with Fleetwood Mac song uh, "Landslide," right? Where they say, you know, uh, um, can I change with the seasons of my life? Right? Uh, I've been afraid of changing because I built my life on you, and and you could be anything. You could be, yeah. You know, think of yourself. It could be um, your your work. It could be, you know. Uh, and then it says the words time gets bolder and children get older and I'm getting older too. And so this time gets bolder has captivated me because man, it comes fast. The older you get, the faster it, it, it comes. And so, um, uh, it's a, it's a real challenge. So I'm hearing that in my head's back again now as we end our podcast. I'm going to go back and listen to that. I actually just listened to a sort of a behind the scenes um, look at Fleetwood Mac. Oh, okay. And uh, the, yeah, the podcast is called something like, why is this song number one or something like that? Anyway, I'm going to go back and listen to it because that sounds pretty fantastic. We also just want to thank our Patreon supporters. Thank you for your ongoing financial support. If anyone would like uh, to support this conversation that we're doing and help us uh, to pay for the bills and the hosting fees, we would sure love that. So you can find us on Patreon at Piecing It All Together, P-E-A-C. All right. Thanks for being with us.